welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball. It's a special edition, a special Euro 2020 in 2021 edition of this show. It's the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman, and this time out, we're going to try to embody the grudgingly joyous or, you know, joyously grudging tone of the German football press after Germany squeaked through to the knockout stage with a 2-2 draw. Okay, I'm joined by none other than Nick Wildhagen. Nick, where exactly are you at? Are are you more are you are you more with a joy, uh more more grudge? What what are you feeling? <laughs> well, these days, uh the biggest grudge I'm holding is against UEFA. Because in, in the last episode we actually talked about the fact that UEFA turned down the city of Munich's request to light the Allianz Arena and the colours of the rainbow. That was considered to be a political gesture, uh, which is something that I so I, I don't understand where they're coming from, given that football in itself is very political, whichever way you turn, but it's just so fucking convenient for UEFA to hide behind that chart and say, oh, we don't allow political statements of any kind. I actually said that already on, on the last episode, but when I found out that UEFA actually colored their logo in the colors of the rainbow on Twitter, defending their decision whilst posting that logo. Oh yeah, what what a bold gesture that was. Yeah, that really that really got to me. That really pissed me off because if if we take a wider look at politics within the Euros and, you know, excuse me if I'm if I'm going a little bit overboard with that, we could talk about a lot of things because we could talk about tech teams taking the knee, which for me is a political gesture because it symbolizes that we still have a lot to figure out and we have to do that as well through through political change, through policy change, and that, you know, to get to a more equal and just society, we, you know, it takes political change. So why is that allowed, but not the rainbow in Munich? Yeah. Come on, guys. Come on, come on, come on! And, you know, my hunch is that the answer can be found with uh, within the world of politics and money, because UEFA are actually making a very political statement themselves when they allow Qatar Airlines to sponsor this, this whole tournament, because, let's be honest, Qatar Airlines is a state-owned company by a state that tramples on LGBT plus rights whenever it can. The airline itself has been uh, singled out by trade unions for, you know, slave-like working conditions for its staff. And, you know, there's, there's the bit of, you know, of Qataris being sent to labor camps if they do business with Jews. So you've got like a triple whammy there. You've got anti-Semitism, homophobia, and gay bashing, whichever way you turn, and a bit of slavery. So, you know, as long as the money is good, <laughs> UEFA goes with it, though. I mean, that, that sends a chilling message, doesn't it? So for me, it's really disgusting. And, and you shouldn't be fooled by those crooks at UEFA when they send some, you know, PR staffer to do that. I like it. I like it. You're coming in hot. You are serving up the searing commentary uh, about UEFA. And I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the focus on, I think, what's all sporting consequences aside is the important stuff uh, surrounding this tournament. But, you know, we do probably need to uh, move along. <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is this is talking foosball, uh, and we do have a certain a certain responsibility to talk about what happens to the German national team. But we are going to take a little break before we do that. All 
right, here comes the top segment of this edition of Talking Foosball. It is a special Euro 2020 and 2021 edition. So uh, it's the end of the group stage here. We all know how things played out. Germany ended up second in its group. That means that they uh, booked a place through their 2-2 draw versus Hungary in the round of 16. They're going to be playing England at Wembley in just a few days' time. But I think we really should talk about how they got there and specifically talk about that match against Hungary. I already mentioned it was a draw, you know, a pretty eventful four goal in the match type of draw. So there's plenty to talk about there. I'll just quickly sort of recapitulate. Weird game, really weird game. Not only in terms of uh, just <laughs> the succession of goals and when they came, but sort of the tone and, and the way that the two teams set up to play. Early shock for Germany, courtesy of uh, Adam Salai, assisted by Roland Schalai. So, you know, big, big Bundesliga type goal. Then an absolutely long, bordering on interminable period of meandering attack from Germany, finally getting a goal. A kind of ridiculous goal, really, from uh, Kai Havertz after, a, you know, Mats Hummels had popped the ball up straight up in the air beyond the outstretched arms of uh, Peter Gulacci. Then uh, one of the dumbest goals that I've ever seen <laughs> conceded in uh, a major tournament, scored by Andras Schaefer, literally seconds after the restart following uh, Havertz's goal. And, you know, finally, in, in you know, five minutes from time, Finally, a moment of real purpose from Germany. I think it's no coincidence that it came from a, a set of substitutes, Timo Werner, Jamal Musiala, and finally, Leon Goretzka, the goal scorer, got the job done for Germany. I found this a <laughs> incredibly frustrating match to sit down and watch because, you know, anytime you have a very limited but determined team who is playing well on the night, which I got to give it to Hungary. They they did play well. They did sort of execute their admittedly limited game plan against Germany. And Germany seemed to just flail around doing not much of anything, pushing the ball back and forth, putting in a lot of ineffective crosses, a lot of plotting buildup. This was, this was, uh, this was the bad Germany again. <laughs> It was. And, um, you know, we talked about this in, in the preview with the uh, Hungarian journalist, Jerzy Maroji. Yeah, yeah. That this game could go either two ways. Either Germany scores first and it's pretty much going to steamroll all over Hungary afterwards. Or the game goes either on for some time without any of the side scoring or Hungary gets the early goal. And they did for after, you know, a defensive error. Joachim Löw said after the match that this was actually a defensive error by Mats Hummels and Matthias Ginter because they, in these situations, the national team is supposed to cover the man and not the space, and nobody covered Schorlai, uh, which um, ended up in, in the Mainz player being able to head home a, a very delicate cross by former Bundesliga player Roland Schorlai. So there was that defensive error. At that point, Hungary knew that they were going to go through if that result stood. And from there on out, they just frustrated Germany. And what was lacking from Germany's play throughout the entire first half, or most of the first half, was was what Jogi Löw had told he wanted to see from his team uh, in the pre-press conference. He wanted to see ball tempo, you know, playing playing the ball with purpose and pace. It was it was slow motion football. 
And, you know, if you're playing slow motion football, a side that is as well organized and as happy to run as Hungary, they're not going to allow you to create too many chances. And, you know, actually the best chance Germany had was uh, Mats Hummels heading a corner kick, I think, onto the crossbar. And um, that came from set piece. Other than that, Germany didn't create an awful lot throughout the entire first half. And they went into the dressing room being 1-0 down, and rightly so, if you ask me. And um, the second half didn't didn't offer an awful lot of improvement. And w- what I really found shocking is the fact that Leroy Zane stayed on the pitch for the entire 90 minutes because I he thought had, we might get there. He had really a dreadful game. I mean, you know, when he was defending backwards, he was a bit erratic, really, getting an unnecessary yellow card. When he was asked to do, you know, something like swinging in a corner kick, that ended up right next to the other corner flag because it was so misplaced. Whenever he was in a one-on-one, he lost it. He never showed his pace and his brilliance. And it's really uh, sad to see that a player of his caliber can have such a bad match because this was really one of the worst matches I've I've seen anybody play in the national team jersey for a long time. And, and that says a lot going by how, how Germany has been playing over the last few years. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I too was shocked, especially as, as Joachim Löw kept putting in more players toward the end. He was made a lot of substitutes over that last uh, half an hour of play. And <laughs> I just kept thinking, it's got to be Sunday. It's got to be Sunday. <laughs> it's got to be Sunday. And it just never was. He kept bringing in attack minded substitutes, players who, you know, ostensibly could have either been direct replacement for Sane or could have, could have necessitated a slight tactical change of some kind. And he just kept him on there. I, I guess to give the, the benefit of the doubt, he was basically, and he admitted after the game, by the end, he was just throwing the kitchen sink at Hungary. And in that respect, you don't necessarily want to bring off a fast, creative player, even one who's having a bad night. But man, he wasn't just having a bad night. He was having a, he was having a mare. That guy was <laughs> all over the place doing almost everything wrong all night. It was, you, you almost felt sorry for the guy. You really did. You know, I think the thinking uh, behind that was that Löw knows that Sané is uh, capable of a moment of brilliance even when he has bad matches. So that is the thinking there, and uh, it didn't it didn't come off. But uh, fortunately, some of the other substitutes paid off. And um, and I mean, listen, based on the balance of play, uh, it was probably not an undeserved equalizer if we take a closer look at the XG and the stats and all that. And. Hungary are really a very limited team in that they only defend, 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 defend and frustrate oppositions. But, you know, when it came time for them to actually chase the game, when that late goal came, they didn't have anything to offer, really. Germany kept them out quite easily. They didn't create any sort of big chances when they when they had to. So it was a bit of a nightmare, but luckily Germany woke up uh, being in the next round the, the following day. And, uh, you know, from what I can see, they actually... We're really lucky that they didn't win this match, you know, going by how the brackets are set up at this Euros, because now they've got England, and after that they might have Ukraine or Sweden, and then it's probably going to be the the Netherlands who forever wins that. So I think Germany, England, and the Netherlands are not all looking 
within themselves and thinking, hey, we actually have a really good chance of getting to the final here. Yeah, yeah. I, I think before we get ahead of ourselves too much, however, I, I think it's probably worth talking about, um, you know, a little bit more uh, about what kinds of, of, of changes this game and the sort of uh, knife edge that it was uh, sitting on might bring about. I mean, as you, as you mentioned, I think if you just look at uh, the balance of play and if you look at things through like XG in this um, Germany were, you know, probably the, the, the better side, they were up for it more. I mean, I think I'm looking at the Kaylee graphics uh, Twitter here. Uh, it was 1.9 for Germany to 0.6 for Hungary. You know, <laughs> really terrible defensive mistakes will sometimes have an awful magnifying effect on, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, how, how, the, how the balance of play um, goes out. But I, I think you do make a nice point that while we have seen really two fairly poor performances from Germany and one good one, uh, in this group stage, the slate's now clean. Sweden or Ukraine would await if they can get past England, which of course is going to be a fairly tough ask, considering it's at Wembley. Considering England have have also, I think, probably been playing a bit below their potential. I think England, if they make some changes, could be due for a breakout. But but let, let's let's think about Germany first. Like I said, the late equalizer did come from the better movement. The, the sort of crisper passing and more direct play that you got from some of these substitutes. I mean, the ones that I mentioned, Werner, Musiala, and, and Goretzka, I think at least Goretzka has probably played himself into a starting role. I think if Joachim Löw finds himself in another position where he's looking for another attacking winger, I don't think he's going to turn to Leroy Sané if, if he doesn't think uh, Müller is fully fit for a starting role. I wouldn't be shocked to see Musiala either start or get uh, a full half, depending on what the situational deal is for Germany. Are there changes that you think might be immediately in store. I mean, you know, defenses, I can't really single anybody out as being a weak link or playing particularly poorly because, you know, the way that Germany play at times can leave them, leave players exposed. But what tinkering around the edges or what wholesale changes might you be having in mind? Yeah, I think uh, besides uh, Leroy Zane, Ilko Gundogan had a really poor game as well. I mean, he's the sort of player who's supposed to be... Um, good in you know in, in tight spaces and being able to distribute the ball well and finding solutions quickly and he he didn't show that all game and it was rightly taken off by love uh during the second half so i think uh, goretzka might be getting his place uh, i think Müller is probably going to be fit for the england match going to return i i, I was kind of baffled by the fact that love took out took out uh Harvitz. yeah it seemed early it seemed early moments after after he scored that goal by the way which um you know, I think Harvitz, who um, now is, by the way, the youngest goal scorer in Germany's history uh, at the Euros, taking him off didn't didn't make any sense because I, I think he he always represents an attacking threat. And and when Leroy Zane was having the game, he was having one or take off him. But well, so so I think getting Miller back into the starting lineup and getting Goretzka in there, and uh, you know, getting Zane and uh, Ilka Gundogan probably out of there is is probably going to be. The, the two logical substitutions that uh, Löw would be looking at. And another thing I think Löw has to think about is, is the fact that when Matthias Ginter goes up and he crosses the ball, those crosses usually uh, end up in, yeah, either being headed away or going all over everybody. 
Uh, his crossing was poor all game long, and uh, it was really frustrating to see that Germany was sort of playing like almost like a handball team, changing the ball from side to side, from side to side, from mm-hmm. side to side, and it would somehow always end up with Ginter going for a cross and the ball going nowhere in particular. So Walsam don't think that Ginter probably is going to lose his spot in the starting lineup. I, I would sort of reconsider that tactic of allowing Ginter to cross too much because at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think that his crossing has, has proven itself to be, you know, accurate enough to, to, to allow him to do that all game long, really. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, a lot of his crosses to me are less crosses than like deep diagonal balls because he's not, he's not going to the end line and trying to sort of whip it in in that way he's 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 putting it from you know either the edge of the area at the at the sort of the, the corner of the area or like wide there on the right but like well short of the end line so i i don't think that they're necessarily bringing a lot of risk because he's generally in a position where he can still get back but i i do share your well <laughs> i share your your criticism of the quality of the crosses and christ i mean you know <laughs> I hate crosses. What can I say? I want less of them unless, you know, there's a few people who can do them really well and you can do them, but like mostly they're trash. Hold on to the ball and, and cut it back or do something, but like most whipped in crosses are trash. But what you're describing is sort of like the tactics of, you know, putting your money into a savings account because, you know, you're going to get some sort of interest. It's not going to be big. It's not going to make you a rich man, but you know it's risk adverse. But what you want to see in attack is taking risks, because risk actually yields rewards. And yes, uh, a part of uh, being a coach of has to do with the fact that when you take these risks, you want to have a plan for how you can defend a counterattack. But just going for the crosses and say, well, that that's not too risky. You know, we're not going to be found out on the break is a bit of a crappy answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it also has a lot to do with what d- opponents are giving you. Opponents, especially defensive minded opponents, are generally quite happy to cede a lot of territory around the wings. And that's, you know, you, you take what you get. Nonetheless, it's it's not a... <laughs> And that's not often a, a great tactic unless you have actual physical advantages or m- numerical advantages in the center where you can really exploit that. I mean, German, Germany doesn't have Robert Lewandowski in the box there or Cristiano sure Ronaldo. Miro Klose, you know, to speak about, you know, players who have been aerial threats in the past. I mean, if it wouldn't be for his blood clot. He probably could make a return to the national team and uh, help them out in that regard. But um, yeah, I mean, the, there's really... You don't really see anybody who's there in in the box thinking, yeah, they'd be really, really good at getting at the end of crosses and heading them home. So at the end of the day, I I don't think that tactic has failed. And, uh, you know, they used the same sort of tactics against France as well, and that didn't yield anything at all. Yeah. Before we move on from uh, sort of the the mop-up of this game, I do want to shine a bit of a light on maybe a different aspect of some of that off-the-field stuff that we opened up the podcast with, which is to say Leon Goretzka and and the way he chose to celebrate his goal, which I thought was <laughs> pretty amazing. Like, you know, scoring 
I know it's an equalizer, but in, in effect, it was a winner. Scoring a winner against a team who would have, you know, otherwise gone through and bounced you from the tournament. And then I don't want to use this word because it's, it's, it maybe is too provocative or too pejorative, but he taunted the Hungarian fans with a heart, with love. He basically went up to them because they were scoring at the Hungary end and reminded them that <laughs> it's all about love here, folks. Love is love. Yeah, I mean, I think what might have put a strain on the German national team as well is that this game has been played out in the press and there was a lot of politicking around this. This game was actually given a political significance by the fact that the City Council of Munich wanted to send a direct middle finger to Viktor Orban saying that you pass laws against homosexuals, the LGBT plus community in your country, well, we'll light up the stadium with a rainbow, showing that, you know, love is love and that it's okay to be gay or whatever you choose to be. It's your choice. It's pride. And uh, Viktor Orban himself then decided not to attend the match because all the rainbow colors at, at the ground would have probably been a little bit too much to handle for good old Vic. So, I mean, all, all of these things leading up to the match, they, they surely must have increased the pressure because it was also a very political game in that sense that was being played out. And, uh, you know, uh, it must have been a great relief to score that goal. And, yeah, showing that love is love is, is just the, the, the right answer. And, and by the way, another gesture that the, I, I would like to highlight in that regard is the fact that Manuel Neuer, whilst taking off his keeper jersey, he kept on his captain's armband with a, with a rainbow colour uh, during his post-match interviews. And that surely was also intended to, to send a signal towards the Hungarian fans and the Hungarian government. So, yeah, it, it was definitely a very political game at what UEFA considers to be an apolitical tournament. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see how well those plans play out over the next several rounds. Okay, let's think a little bit about what's to come. We will probably meet up again, you and me, or one of us, plus Terry DeFellin, our, our, our token Englishman, before the, the, the England game. One thing that comes to mind, though, just as, as a sort of a, a, a basic observation, which, you know, may or may not turn out to be prescient, Germany have had a, a real struggle against the two teams who have basically been set up to absorb pressure and counter, which is to say France and Hungary. And they kind of were stymied. And then against the team that actually wanted to come out and play, Portugal, they crushed them. I, despite the fact that, that England is a tall order in terms of talent, in terms of, you know, attacking prowess, I think it might be okay for them. I think it might be okay for Germany because I don't I don't see England uh, going into this game getting into a low block and then, you know, trying to burst forward at speed. I think they're going to have a very different way of controlling the game or or, or different preference uh, about how they want to play. So I I'm, I'm quite intrigued about what might happen. I think Germany's probably going to get a lot more joy out of their wing play against England given that England has a back four, uh, which is keeping it tight, which is probably going to give Germany a little bit more space to work with on the wings, and uh, that is what really worked well for them in the game against Portugal. 
Or we'll have to see. I mean, maybe Gareth Southgate has seen those three matches thinking, well, if we have a back three slash back five, we could really frustrate Germany here. But that would be a massive tactical change for Southgate and his team. So doing these tactical changes, they are a risky thing to do. If you're playing, you know, if you're trying to play uh, against your opponent's weaknesses and, you know, uh, deploying something that you're not really used to. So that, that is sort of a big gamble to take in, in a knockout match. So yeah, I think that is probably going to be one of the, the key elements here. And, and the other one is, is, again, going to be to shut up shop at the back. And Harry Kane hasn't really had a great tournament so far. But when you see that Germany defense, you just think, well, if he's going to score at any point in this tournament, it might be against that lot. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's going to be a really interesting game. And uh, yeah, more to come in a future episode. All right, we are back here on Talking Foosball with another special Euro 2020 in 2021 edition. There is more to talk about, of course, from this tournament. Germany is but one of, you know, 16, 16 teams, you know, let's, it's, uh, it's one of those tournaments where two thirds of the teams make it out of the group stage, which is, you know, considering, uh, how, how Germany played probably good, just by, they did come in second, but, you know, leaving all that aside, but we probably are going to zoom in on, on the Bundesliga type stuff. I would say, you know, the biggest headline probably has to do with the biggest name that exists in Bundesligaville, which is uh, Robert Lewandowski. He did all he could. He really did all he could going into his, his team's final group stage game, you know, banging in goals, inspiring his team. Not enough. Poland out. How do you assess now that we're looking probably at, I don't know, it's possible this was, was a, a final major tournament for Lewandowski for Poland. I guess, you know, since the next World Cup is only a year and a half away now, he might as well stick around for it. But I don't see this team really ever achieving very much compared to what he's achieved at the club level. Any sort of thoughts about his predicament? Yeah, sort of reminiscent of George Best in his day, uh, who was a Northern Irish player who suffered from the fact that Northern Ireland really had a crappy team and he was the best footballer on earth. And uh, you could say that uh, Robert Lewandowski is in a quite similar situation these days. I mean, yes, sure, he's he's has strong competition for that title in Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Leo Messi and uh, Kylian Mbappé. But yeah, he has he has that same sort of predicament. And uh, yes, he did all he could. He scored three goals in three matches. That is a decent strike rate uh, at this level. But it's not enough when you lose against Slovakia. I mean, that, that is really what broke Poland's back. And that comeback against Sweden was truly inspiring, but lacked a happy ending. And when they were throwing everything forward and they created chances to get that third goal that would have seen them go through, they were hit on the break in, in the end, and it, it was a it was a, probably they deserved better. You felt whilst watching the match, but um, at the end of the day, that team is is lacking the quality to go deep into such a tournament. 
And that's always going to stay that same way. And uh, we talked about that at the start of the years because we always thought that Robert Lewandowski was a bit meh compared to uh, at, in, when he was playing for Poland compared to club level. And uh, even and it turns out even if he brings out his game and even if he performs at his best like he did at the Euros, it's not enough to lift this team from being just a below average side to being a slightly above average side. Yeah, yeah, and and as you said, I think that that game against Slovakia was really the one that killed them because that was that was the winnable game, the most winnable game. We all saw Slovakia. They were, they, you know, they 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 were also pretty poor, <laughs> but to be fair, Poland Poland were pretty poor as well. I guess I guess maybe a brief mention for you know one of uh, Sweden's heroes on the night didn't score the winner but did score their other two goals that's Emil Forsberg of of you know RB Leipzig what do, what do you sort of see in Sweden's future i mean he's not the only bundesliga player for that team who was making an impact i think um you know we saw some good flashes from Robin Quaison we saw Ludwig Augustinsson as well oh. yeah Ludwig Augustinsson was 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 good in that game as well this is an interesting team because I feel like they too did not exactly cruise into the knockout stage, but they also didn't really get whipped at any point. I mean, even the game when they were sort of, you know, they had their backs against the wall for 90 minutes was against Spain and Spain, you know, that's, that's what happens when you play against Spain. I, I feel like they had the two best chances in that. Yeah, match. for sure. For sure. I mean, they are sort of like, a bit reminiscent of, you know, a typical Scandinavian side. Uh, they play a 4-4-2, flat 4-4-2, uh, two banks of four, a lot of defending, a lot of running, and they're well organized, but it's not really something that is super creative, tactically speaking. It is simple, but it's hard to break down, and they do have a bit of quality up front that allows them to score. And it was actually quite funny watching Norwegian television the other day uh, in the, uh, watching the pre-match analysis of, of Sweden. And uh, there was a Swedish journalist who said that whenever Emil Forsberg does well, Sweden does well. So he is kind of their key player in terms of whenever he does well, the team performs well. So he's pretty much their go-to guy. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think... Um, you know, when you see like Sebastian Larsson still playing in the Euros at age 36 and Slatan Ibrahimovic would have played at age 40 or something. And then you have Marcus Berg at age 34 who plays and is currently at Krasnodar, I think. Still missing sitters whenever he can, <laughs> delighting us all. So it's, it's sort of like it's it's a very simple recipe, but it's one that works. And uh, it's tip of, typical for some Scandinavian teams. I mean, Norway in the 90s and early 2000s, they also were really well organized. And, well, they got a lot of joy out of frustrating other sides, really. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing that I think of, I mean, maybe this is this is just me banging on about my uh, my theory about teams who are, are set up to, to absorb and counter. I would be very afraid if Germany did manage to beat England if they had to play Sweden in 
the quarterfinal round. I feel like Sweden, the way Sweden play is exactly the kind of team that Germany really struggle against. So, I mean, obviously that, 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 that's taking, that's taking two results for granted, which may or may not uh, happen. But I, I look at that side of the bracket that Germany is on, which as you say, is, is very much the weaker side. You don't have, you know, Spain, France, Italy, Portugal or Belgium. None of those, you know, five very good teams are on that side. I look at Sweden and I think, man, they would probably give Germany a serious headache. Anything, anything to say about uh, Denmark? I mean, Denmark has been a really inspiring uh, team. Just their their story. We we all know what 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 went down with, you know, Christian Eriksson and, and their sort of miracle comeback. Uh, to, to, to make it through to the knockout stage after losing their first two games. That's that's a first. Yeah, I think that Denmark really showed a lot of great team spirit when they went out onto the pitch against Belgium, didn't get the result, but really frustrated Belgium for a long time and asked a lot of questions of them. And when they faced a side that was a lot weaker than Belgium, they really steamrolled them. I think they were really superior to Russia. And uh, you can see... Everybody running for everyone, and it's it's such great team spirit within that team. And uh, you know, despite losing the first two matches, that that team all, already turns out to be one of the best stories that the Euros have have produced. Team spirits are high. Everybody's playing for everybody. Uh, everybody is doing it for Christian now. It seems they they really care about their teammate who who really suffered a terrible fate during that first uh, group match. Uh, so uh, for me, it's, it was one of those magical nights in, in, in the park in, in, in Copenhagen uh, that really induced a lot of goosebumps. And um, I think nine months from now, there are probably going to be a lot of babies born out of wedlock in Copenhagen and around Denmark. <laughs> well, what if, what if they get so swept up in the emotions that they get married, Nick? You know, we, could, we, could, we could see even, even increased wedlock. It's Denmark, not Vegas. <laughs> exactly. Although Denmark, and this is interesting, I think Denmark has some of the. Uh, it's easier to get married in Denmark than it is in, in a number of other European uh, countries. So it's not out of the question. Okay. Well, that, that's probably enough of you know the the Euro twenty twenty tournament. We do have a, a few other little bits and bobs that I think might be worth bringing up. One being uh, the other side of UEFA. You know, the side that um, administers, you know, pan-European club football competitions. Pretty big rule change has come down from from Mount UEFA on this fine Thursday, June 24th. The away goals rule that, uh, you know, sort of governs results in the knockout stages of, you know, the Champions League, the Europa League. I suppose it would have counted in the... UEFA Europa Conference League, but it's not gonna because there's gonna be no uh, no away goals rule as of season after next, I believe, is is the deal. What what do you make of that? I I'm I'm generally cool with it. I mean, I, I I the only thing that bums me out a little bit is that I feel like we might get more penalty shootouts, which I think is never a good thing. But it never really sat that great with me. I have to say the away goals rule. I think a penalty shootout is. Uh... A competition of skill. I mean, yes, people say it's a lottery, but it's also a competition of... It's not a lottery. It's a competition of skill as well. While scoring as many goals as the opposition. And, you know, 
would suggest to me that the level of skill and the level of play that has been in front of us has been on an equal footing. But to say that one goal counts more than the other is a bit unfair. I mean, this rule was established back in the day to encourage more attacking play from opposition teams when they were going on the road. Didn't work out that way. But what it actually accomplished was that teams who were playing at home first, they were shutting up shop, just hoping they would get in a counter-attack or two and, you know, go in with a 1-0 or... 2-0 lead into the away tie because then it meant that they again could shut up shop wait for that counter attack frustrate the opposition and maybe score an away goal and that in itself led to fewer rather than more goals so you know all all goals being worth an equal amount in that regard is probably not a not a bad thing because winning 3-2 at home is as good as winning 2-1 on the road because it means that you've got a one-goal advantage and you, you don't have to be afraid that that goal advantage is going to be swept away by somebody scoring an extra goal on the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think we, we briefly mentioned this before we started recording, but, like, the thing that particularly sat badly with me about the away goals rule is, is extra time. Mm, when you would get, yeah. you know, let's say it ended, you know, 2-1, to you know in the favor of the home team in both in both legs you would get you know extra time because it was 3-3 with an equal number of home and away goals and then for whatever reason like whichever team whichever team happened to be the visiting team on the night of the second leg you know would have this advantage going into extra time of knowing that all they needed to do was score a goal and not concede more than one in extra time. It just, it seemed particularly cruel that like you wouldn't get a clean slate in, you know, the, the, you know, 181st through 210th minute of, of football, which constituted that match. Like it's, it, I don't know. I mean, I have my own, pro- I, I'm not even, I'm not even completely sold on the idea of a two leg match to be God, to be, to be honest here. I, I feel like a football match is 90 minutes. It's not 180 minutes. Um, <clears throat> so we can leave that aside, but I thought it was particularly, particularly crappy to have that, you know, tacked on extra time that still was governed by the away goals rule. So yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Some transfer news then? Yeah. Yeah. You know, anybody who, who follows the old transfer ticker, whether it be on, you know, uh, kicker, transfer, mocked, goal, where all your all your usual suspects know that there's a lot, a lot of dross in there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, players moving from, you know, uh, Heidenheim to uh, Zondhausen. And, and we're, we're trying to filter it for you here, folks. Uh, we're just giving you the best of the best. Nicolas Gonzalez, Stuttgart striker, spent a lot of the second half of the season hurt, but still quite a good player, leaving on uh, on, on a jet plane to uh, Florence, Italy, going to go play for La Viola. That's kind of a loss in, in my book for uh, Stuttgart, despite the fact that Stuttgart are, are blessed at the moment with a number of you know effective attackers. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, definitely a loss. Uh, he definitely came good this season, and uh, he's really an all-around good striker. Uh, a lot of skill, uh, a lot of pace, great finishing at his best. So, uh, yeah, definitely a loss. Uh, however, situation is that they need to get rid of some of that talent because, as as they said, they financially speaking, they they cannot pass up good offers at the moment. So, 
going by how much they're getting for him, and that I think it's a it's a sum above twenty million euros. It was too good an offer to pass up on, and uh, you know I'm not overly concerned for them because they have Sven Mislintat, who's great at spotting talents, and they have a coach in uh, Matarazzo uh, who is. Uh, great at developing talents and uh, working with the talents that Sven Mislintas finds for him. So they are probably going to go into the next Bundesliga season anyways, thinking, okay, we want to finish in, in the middle of the table. If things could go well, we might again find ourselves competing for Europa Conference, Europa League place. But if things don't go well, we might end up around 12th and that is fine too. So going by by that model, it makes sense to sell players uh, for a lot of money because it it generates the income that the club needs to survive on. What's our next bit of uh, transfer news that you 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 want to talk about? I think this is one you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's the prince returning to the capital, a big city club with a big name player who is larger than life. Yep. Yeah, he is larger than life, Kevin Prince Boateng. I think he's not really coming for his uh, what he can offer on the pitch. I don't know how much he can offer anymore having, you know, not played at a very high level last season and, you know, increasingly played either either at a lower level or or a smaller and smaller role at the last couple of clubs that he's been at. But if he can offer even, you know, three quarters as much as what Sami Kadira uh, offered for Hertha at the second half of last season. I think he's going to be a, a, a really big win. And, you know, I, I know that there's not everybody who's completely on board with this, largely because of the limitations of, of you know, Prince as, as a player at this point. I mean, you know, he's old. He is somebody who I think his reputation, not only as a player, but as a person, really sort of transcends the sort of the smallness of any one thing he may have done or not done on the pitch. I mean, he's a football icon at this point. I feel like he is somebody who young players and players who, especially players who are sort of coming out of the, the Hertha Academy, which which he did, you know, many years ago, are going to look at him and see that he just has literally seen it all. He's played, he's played for, I think, 14 clubs in his career. And, you know, he's, you know, played in, F, in an FA Cup final. He's won the league in Italy. He's played, played for half a season with Leo Messi. I mean, he's literally seen it all. So I, I'm very excited for it. I'm a little bit tempered. My excitement is tempered because I think, you know, Herta originally wanted to try and get him and his brother, Jerome, to come play for, for a season at least together. It seems like uh, Jerome is not not on the same page with that plan, but, you know, there's time. Well, we'll he, he'll, he'll see eventually what offers come in. And, uh, you know, if it's just Burnley asking, do you, do you want to fight for the 16th spot in the Premier League? He might have a rethink. Who knows? Um... I mean, another bit of transfer news that I do find exciting, and uh, here we are talking Premier League once again. Lucien Favre is is set to join Crystal Palace, and uh, uh, we should have Terry on right about now, because I think that is a very exciting move. Yeah, I think it's a super exciting move. I, I, I really see the stars lining up well for him and this club. I mean... You know, his his time at Dortmund, which is obviously the most high-profile club that he's been in charge of, was oddly enough, despite the fact that he, you know, he came 
reasonably close to winning the league a couple of times, despite, you know, sort of folding at inopportune times. His Dortmund sides were good. Um, but really, I think the, the the best comparison that you can make here is is the time that he spent at Hertha, the time that he spent at Gladbach, and the time that he spent at Nice. I mean, these are all second, maybe third tier clubs in their league. And, you know, he got all of them either into Europe or very close. And I I think Crystal Palace fans have a lot of good, a lot of good games to look forward to this season. I think that this could be a team if he can get it right. And if he gets the support he needs in terms of, you know, getting hold of some, some, some players, I think that they could be a big surprise next year. Yeah, me too. I mean, thing about losing father Dortmund, uh, with like losses against Köln and such, when you are in charge of Crystal Palace, losing against a side of Cologne's stature, isn't a big deal because you are of the same stature yourself. Yeah, no doubt. I, I feel like, and it's interesting, there, there was an article in The Athletic earlier today sort of chronicling how, how uh, Crystal Palace ended up going with Lucien Favre. And, you know, obviously there's this undercurrent of, you know, Premier League executives kind of having their heads up their own ass, which is shocker, not really being that familiar with his, his full managerial resume and, and initially thinking that maybe, maybe it was a bad fit because he had been, you know, in charge of such a big club like Dortmund and, and he had sort of a rocky history there. But lo and behold, the closer they looked at his other, his other jobs in Gladbach, in Nice, they realized this is a guy who can take kind of off-brand clubs to, you know, higher heights than they've ever been before or been in a long time in, in Gladbach's case. So I, I think it could be a great fit. Yeah, and the, the points average for, for Lucien Favre's Dortmund side is actually one of the best in Dortmund's history. Let's not forget that. Some some other news. Uh, Sebastian Borner wants out at uh, Cologne and he wants to join Wolfsburg. I think that's a move that makes sense in terms of Borner having shown himself to be a worthy Bundesliga defender and Belgium national team player. He wants to make the next step and uh, play in the Champions League. And that, that is probably necessary because uh, right now the Belgium national team has a, has a, you know, a rather old back line. And if you want to be in the running to pick up those places when the time comes around. And Sebastian Bono is, I think he's fairly young at 22, 23. You want to play at the highest level possible. And if Wolfsburg can offer Champions League football, well, what's he sticking around in, uh, in Cologne? Yeah, I see it as a smart move for him too. I think you point out quite rightly, Belgium's generation, this, you know, golden generation. I mean, they're going to get the shot in this tournament that is being played right now. They may have a shot in, you know, Qatar. But they're going to be looking for a lot of new people very soon. And I, I feel like Sebastian Morna, I've seen enough of him to, to say that he should be in the running in the near future for Belgium. And if he's doing it on the Champions League level, I think he will have every argument he needs. Indeed. And a uh, bit of news for our American listeners. I know there are quite a few of you. Andrew Wooten. No. <laughs> no. Um, Caden Clark. Not Andrew Wooten. He's yesterday's news. Well, yeah, he's, he's back in Germany too by third tier level, so let's not go there. But Caden Clark, a talent who has shone at uh, New York Red Bulls, he is joining. Drum row. Wait, did you say something about Red Bulls? Could it be that he is becoming a Rasenballsportler? Yes, he's, he's, he's doing a drastic change. He's going from uh, drinking Red Bull 
to drinking Red Bull. Yeah, he's he's been drinking it openly to now drinking it out of a brown bag. Yeah, pretty uh, much. You know. So uh, that is Kane Clark, eighteen-year-old American. Um, we've had a we've had a lot of joy from Gio Reyna at, at Borussia Dortmund, and uh, it'll be exciting to see what he can bring to the table because obviously um, I don't follow MLS football nearly enough. Or well, let's be honest, not at all, really. So I, I don't necessarily know anything about him, but uh, going by that he's 18 and going by the fact that RB Leipzig, a team that is prone to pick up good talent, wants him, has signed him, it's an exciting move. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, he's, it's a very exciting move. I think, you know, I too am, am less of an MLS watcher than perhaps I should be <laughs> living in the United States of America. But, you know, there's just so much other football to watch, especially in a summer like this one. Yeah, I, I do know, I do know well enough that he is, you know, for his age, one of the most celebrated players in, in MLS, one of the sort of most uh, celebrated 18, 17, 18, 19 year olds in the league. And I do know that he is a guy who is not just going to go there because, you know, Leipzig are looking to, you know, expand its American footprint. I mean, Leipzig has its, its stuff together. They, they have an, an American affiliate for a reason. They've already proven with, you know, Tyler Adams, who came out of the same academy as Caden Clark, that they know how to integrate, you know, players from their other, you know, sister clubs into the, into the team. I, I'm very interested to see how that goes. He's going to stick around until the end of this MLS season, which depending on, on what happens with, you know, Red Bulls playoff participation, could could last well into the fall, but I assume he'll probably do much like like uh, Tyler Adams did a couple of years ago, and and join in the winter break and be ready to go in the Rückrunde of uh, this coming Bundesliga season. We'll see. Exciting stuff. All right, that is all for this edition of Talking Foosball. I think we'll probably be back in just a few days prior to the England match. I think there's going to be a little bit of a stage setting to be done there and and certainly after that match win lose or draw <laughs> scratch that last one nick Fildhagen, it was really nice to have you back on i think i think you know having you as a as a sort of permanent accompaniment through the tournament is, is a real pleasant thing it is pleasant to be back on and yeah i uh you know despite all all my anger at uefa this is like uh, it's a bit like crack cocaine uh, you you cannot get away from from this tournament can you yep yep it's it's one of those things it's like uh you know it, you got to be thankful for somebody to put this tournament on it's just a shame that it has to be uefa <laughs> Yeah, and it's a shame that it has to be in Budapest and Baku because don't let me get started on, you know, these regimes because then we'd be here forever. All right, please do subscribe to the podcast, rate us, review us, talk us up to your friends. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.